Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. Uh, not much going on this week. Um, there's the, the county in which I live has uh, gone under a shelter-in-place order, uh, but fortunately for you, uh, I don't have anybody that I do this podcast with, except for my wife, and if either of us are going to get COVID, then the other's going to get COVID, so that's just the reality I'm living in right now. Anyway, here's uh, the story for this week. Um, we're, we're all doing well. We're still doing fine. If you are listening to this, please, 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 please stay at home. Please stay at home. Please, please stay at home. Please. Don't go out unless you absolutely, positively have to. All right? If you have anything left to eat in your house, eat that. Don't go to the grocery store just to buy Go-Gurt. All right? Just please stay at home. Social distance. Isolation. It's the only way we're going to get this thing under control. All right. Enough of that. Here we go. Into the Black. By William Meikle. I don't expect you to believe all of what I have to tell you. After all, I'm not even sure I believe it myself. But what follows here is as true and accurate an attempt at some kind of clarity as I can muster. Whether it's enough to deter you from the course of action you seem hell-bent on following, only you can decide. Know this. I intend to be as distant from that dashed place as is humanly possible if and when you make a fresh expedition there. You already know why we were there, so I shall gloss over the basics and get to the pertinent part. Our problems began a month after drilling started. Hodgson's new screw bit worked superbly, and we were growing increasingly confident that the latest British expedition was going to go down in history as the one which finally pierced the secrets which lay hidden under the ice on the Antarctic shelf. We passed the 400 yards depth and kept going straight on, setting a new drilling depth record in the process. But there was no time for celebration just then. We were men on a mission, a mission of discovery. Indeed, that morning brought a breakthrough we had not foreseen, for we thought that our drilling might come to an abrupt end when we hit bedrock, so I was most surprised when I stood over the drill head and heard a distant gurgling in the shaft coming up from the depths. The drill's fixtures rattled and shook, and I urged the others to retreat a safe distance, but in the end it was all rather anticlimactic, as there was merely a small burp leaving a puddle of water already starting to freeze for six feet around the shaft. We hurried to collect what samples we could before the cold could take its toll, but I was dismayed to find, on getting them back inside to the lab, that much of it was just so much crushed ice and slushy water. My dismay was fortunately short-lived, and a quick look under the microscope soon had me excited again, for there was clearly life on the slide I had prepared, life brought up from the depths where it had lain for ages too long to comprehend. I saw diatoms and algae, amoeba and hydra, a veritable profusion of microscopic life, such things as had never been thought possible in such a harsh environment, and as the water heated up under the light stage of the microscope, so things began to get more frantic under the slide. Frenzy and fights for survival replaced the torpor of the deeps. A long-awaited spring was sprung. And that was when I caught my first glimpse of the thing. It was so tiny at first that I took it for a mere speck of mineral brought up with the water, too small to allow me to make out any features even under the scope's highest magnification. But it quickly became apparent that, although it was small, it was moving under its own volition. It was, in some sense, alive. Even as I watched it, the moat made its way swiftly across my field of view, moving with what seemed like singular intent, 
embedding itself deep inside a spinning Volvox colony. The result was startling and immediate. The colony went from green to black in an instant, the individual cells subsumed into a smooth-surfaced oily globe that spun slowly and glistened in the faintest rainbow aura. I had to look twice to make sure it was still there, for I could not quite bring myself to believe what I had just witnessed. But there was one fact of which I was certain. I currently had something completely unknown to modern science under my microscope, and much as I could hardly take my eyes off it, I had to tell someone, anyone. I left the lab and went out into the corridor. Hodgson was there, stowing his outside gear in his locker. Quick, man, you have to see this. You won't believe what we found. I was gone for less than thirty seconds, barely enough time for Hodgson to close his locker and follow me back into the lab. The black stuff had been busy in my absence. The slide, the light stage, and an area some six inches in diameter around the base of the microscope was now coated, black and oily and glistening, giving off the same faint shimmering rainbow aura I had seen through the lens. I instinctively started to back away, but Hodgson wasn't quite so quick. Perhaps it was because he was unused to laboratory procedures, perhaps it was no more than simple curiosity, or perhaps the glazed look I thought I saw in his eyes had a more disturbing cause. The last was something I only thought about much later, but whatever the case, Hodgson had stepped over to the microscope before I had time to stop him. He put a hand on the counter some ten inches to one side of the scope as he bent over to have a closer look. The black stuff flowed smoothly like mercury across glass and engulfed the hand before he had a chance to pull it away. Hodgson turned toward me, the glazed look had gone, if indeed it had ever been there, to be replaced by confusion. "'What in blazes is this?' he said. Those were his last words. The black stuff surged up his body, I can describe it no other way, and was over his mouth and nose before he took another breath. Hodgson made a grab for the counter, missed, and pulled the microscope with him as he fell to the floor, his heels drumming twice on the linoleum, then going still. Black stuff foamed and bubbled in his mouth for a long second, then vanished down his throat. It was only then I remembered my training, and instinct took over. I backed out the door, slammed and locked it, and hit the emergency alarm by my left hand. John Greer arrived twenty seconds later. He was just in time to see what the black did to poor Hodgson. It was almost like watching a speeded-up film of a body turning to corruption. His chest caved in under his clothing, and his skin, what we could see of it, writhed and swelled as if infested by a small army of burrowing insects. Then the black came out, oozing like diseased sweat, small beads at first, then rivulets that tore at flesh, rendering it into so much mincemeat before running to the linoleum. It spread tendrils, moving faster than if it had been a mere spillage of liquid, moving purposefully as if looking for something else on which to feed. What had mere seconds ago been a pinprick was now pints, perhaps even a gallon, of oozing, pitch-black fluidity. "'Freeze it. Do it now,' Greer said softly. "'But Hodgson is gone, and you know it. Freeze it before it's too late.' Our purge procedure was a simple one. I pushed the button and heard a hiss as the liquid nitrogen was released. The viewing window in the door fogged up for a second, and I had a moment of panic, stepping back quickly and checking at my feet, for I was sure that the black had made its way under the door. But there was only an increasing blast of cold, and when the window cleared it showed a dark mass of mangled flesh and frozen tissue. It had been my best friend mere minutes before. Carruthers called for an immediate meeting in the mess and spent the first five minutes trying to apportion blame before Greer marched him back through to the window in the laboratory door. 
After he'd had a long look through the window, Carruthers was less worried about any possible scandal and more focused on the more immediate problem at hand. His first question inadvertently echoed Hodgson's own last words. What in blazes is it? It was directed at me. Indeed, as resident biologist, it was my job to know. But I was completely at a loss to explain either what I had seen under this scope or what had happened to Hodgson. My ignorance only served to irritate Carruthers further. I suppose we'll have to stop drilling, he said, as if that was some kind of disaster in and of itself. Only if you want to stay alive, Greer piped up sardonically, and I'd suggest closing off the shaft too, just to be on the safe side. But that will lose us days, weeks, Carruthers blustered. Would you rather lose another man, I said softly, and he had the good grace to blush and back down. Matters went more smoothly after that. Greer and I closed and capped the shaft, taking care to watch out for any trace of blackness in the crushed ice underfoot. When we went back inside, it was to find the remaining three geologists, Williams, Jackson, and Boyle, crowded at the laboratory window to see for themselves what the fuss was about. "'Where's Carruthers?' Greer asked. "'On the blower, calling it in,' Williams replied, not taking his gaze from the scene on the other side of the door. "'Will we be recalled, do you think?' "'Most likely,' Greer replied. A cock-up of this magnitude is going to take some explaining. And what about Hodgson? Boyle asked. We can't leave him lying in there like that. It ain't Christian. I don't think that stuff gives a shit, Greer replied, and without another word, headed off towards the mess. I followed and found him breaking open a bottle of J&B. It seemed like a bloody good idea to join him. We had a drink for Hodgson. One thing led to another, and by the time the evening darkness came round, I was feeling little pain and was more than a bit drunk. Carruthers popped his head in at one point, but obviously realized we were not in the mood to be chastised and left us to it. After the whiskey was gone, Greer suggested making a start on the vodka, but by then I was more than ready to slip into oblivion and forget that the day had ever happened. I left Greer there in the mess, he'd already started with two fingers of the Russian falling down water, and made a careful way back to my bunk. I didn't bother taking off my clothes, the effort was beyond me by that point in any case, I put my head down, closed my eyes to stop my head spinning, and made a dive for the darkness. But oblivion would not have me. Almost as soon as I fell asleep, I dreamed. My head swam, and it seemed as if the walls of my room melted and ran. The light bulb above me receded into a great distance until it was little more than a pinpoint in a blanket of darkness, and I was alone, in a vast cathedral of emptiness where nothing existed save the dark and a pounding beat from below. I danced. Shapes moved beside me in the dark, black shadows with no substance, shadows that capered and whirled as the dance grew ever more frenetic, and we joined. Two, four, eight, sixteen, ever growing, ever doubling. We grew, and we built there in the dark, built in time with the dance. There was stone and ice, then there was just stone again, a vast plain of blocks given form and purpose by the rhythm, and still we danced, and still we built. There was light. Then there was dark. Long dark, long and cold. And we forgot how to dance. We slept. We slept for a long, dark time. And then there was light. And the dancing started again. I came to my senses slowly. I was upright, which in and of itself seemed unusual, and I was not in my bunk, but was instead standing outside the locked door of the laboratory. More worrying still, I had a hand on the lock as if I was ready to push the door open and go inside. The rhythm beat in my head again, and I felt the dance well up inside me, despite the fact that I was now most definitely awake. 
Something drew me forward, and I looked through the small window. The remains were still there on the floor, but they were no longer quite so frozen. The blackness bubbled and seethed, throwing up thin, snake-like tendrils to taste the air and thrash as if in anticipation of a meal. The beat grew stronger, more insistent, and my hand crept toward the lock again. There was only one thing that stopped me, and even now I am not sure if it was but another part of my fever dream. The black tissue split and opened up a small fissure, and a single lidless eye, pale green and milky, stared out from the new fold in the protoplasm. Once again, my self-preservation instinct saved me. I hit the purge button before I even thought to do anything else, and the loud hiss as the nitrogen flooded the room did much to break whatever spell was laid on me. The door window misted and clouded, and when it cleared, I stared in at a frozen mess of tissue on the floor, and the beat, the dance, had stopped, for now at least. I am not prone to sleepwalking. In fact, I do not think I've ever done it. But then again, I had never seen my best friend die in front of my eyes either. I put my experience down to the stress of the day and the cumulative effect of the scotch on top of that. I had to. It was the only way I knew to remain sane. I took myself back to bed, and this time when my head hit the pillow, it was to fall down into the blessed dreamless darkness I had sought earlier. There was no dancing. I woke at some point later, bleary-eyed in darkness with the sound of the alarm ringing and heavy footsteps in the corridor outside the dorm. I roused myself, not as fast as I might have done, for I was sour in the stomach and slow in the head, and went to see what was going on. The cause of the commotion was not hard to ascertain. The three geologists and Carruthers stood in the corridor. The laboratory door was open. There was no sign of any frozen tissue on the floor, no black fluid, and no Greer. We quickly ascertained that he wasn't anywhere on the base, and one of the powered sleds was gone. When Carruthers asked for a volunteer to accompany him and go after Greer, I put my hand up right away. I am not making any claim to bravery or honor. I felt responsible somehow, guilty even. There was the drink, and the dream, and the invitation to dance all jumbled up in my mind. And if I was jumbled, what defense could Greer have made what with having taken the same amount of scotch and then some vodka on top? He had answered a call that was meant for me. At least, that's how I rationalized it to myself there in the mess. By the time I got suited up and went to meet Carruthers in the sled bay, I wasn't feeling quite so bold but the decision had been made. There was no backing out now, and Greer was getting further away by the minute. If he was even still Greer. I put that thought away. If I let it take root and pause to think what might have happened to the black and what manner of thing was out there riding the sled, I might not have been able to leave at all. I might have instead returned to the mess in search of what was left of the vodka and some real oblivion. Instead, I focused on the task at hand. Boyle handed me a rucksack as I checked the sled had plenty of fuel for what might turn out to be a long trek. Soup, coffee, and sandwiches. You'll need them. And make sure you come back. It's starting to feel bloody lonely around here. I put on my goggles, pulled the parka hood over my face, and kicked the sled into gear, following Carruthers out onto the plain. Greer's sled was not hard to follow. The twin track led in a straight line away from the base. I had thought that the black might have made a run for the coast, but it was clear that whoever, or whatever, was driving had only one goal in mind. They were headed straight for the tall mountain range some twenty miles to the south. As far as I knew, the terrain in that direction was terra incognito, 
No one had surveyed there. No one had mapped. The mountains were considered too harsh an environment and too barren to yield much of scientific value. So why would Greer, or even the Black, want to go there? It was a question I had plenty of time to ponder, for the chase was going to be a long one. I tried to peer into the distance, tried to catch any glimpse of our quarry, but the summer glare on the ice was too strong, even through the goggles. At least the journey was not arduous in itself. The plane swept up in a gentle incline toward the mountain foothills, and the ice was crisp and even over soft snow. Our sleds navigated it with little difficulty, and Carruthers in the lead kept up a good pace as if determined to hunt Greer down. There was only one other item to note during that long morning out on the ice. Just as we arrived at the spot where the climb became steeper and the tracks we followed led higher toward a mountain pass, we found something half embedded in the snow, discarded in the black's flight. I stopped beside Carruthers' sled as he tore the find already frozen from the ground and held it up for me to see. It was a pair of long johns, the kind we all wore under everything else, the kind we kept on even when sleeping. The ones Carruthers held up were torn and tattered, and bloodied, the red mixed with streaks of something darker, something black. "'Be careful, Carruthers,' I said, but he didn't need to be told twice. He dropped the torn undergarments to the ice, but not before showing me the name tag stitched into the lining at the waist. They had belonged to Greer, and he was now out on the open ice, headed into the mountains without their protection. It was harder going after that, both because of the increasing incline and accompanying frigidity, and the growing feeling of doom that threatened to overwhelm me entirely. I was more than ever convinced that what we were chasing had little or nothing of Greer left in it, for what man would voluntarily speed so readily toward a certain death in these precipitous canyons? The walls of rock, so sheer that no snow would cling to them, climbed high around us and fell away below us in places. We crossed up and through a series of narrow valleys, many of which could not have seen even a hint of sun for many a long year, having to travel single file for long stretches along narrow ledges above drops that fell away down into Stygian depths. Carruthers stopped at a long, curved corner, forcing me to do the same. He got off his sled and waved me forward. "'Have we caught him?' I asked. "'Not yet,' Carruthers replied, and there was something in his voice and manner that gave me pause. Then I followed his gaze and saw why we had stopped. The cliffs that surrounded us might once have been natural formations, but they had obviously been worked extensively into a series of caves that ran like honeycomb, across, down, and up the rock faces in intricate, bewildering patterns. I saw spirals and ellipses, funnels and cones and other geometries too strange to be understood, let alone described. Each cave was taller than a man and wider by far, smoothly hewn by some machinery I could not begin to fathom. The working stretched off down into the gloom as far as we could see, an unimaginable number. "'What the blazes have we here?' Carruthers whispered. Who could have done something like this? Is it something the Egyptians might have managed, do you think? I wasn't thinking of who. I was thinking of what, and remembering my febrile dreams of the night before. Two, four, eight, sixteen, ever growing, ever doubling. We grew, and we built there in the dark, built in time with the dance. There was stone and ice, then there was just stone again. I believed I knew the answer to Carruthers' question, but there was little sense in telling him then, for although he was a man of great strengths, none of them came from his imagination or willingness to embrace things beyond his ken. "'Whoever built this marvel, they are long gone,' I replied. "'We must press on. 
The day is getting away from us. If we don't catch Gria soon, we will have to turn back. On that matter, Carruthers did at least agree with me, and after a rapid lunch of some soup and a sandwich, we remounted the sleds, following Greer's track ever deeper into the mountain fastness. We were almost at the point of no return, as far as our fuel tanks were concerned, when we rose up through one final pass and came to the entrance of a cave far larger than any we had seen previously. Greer's sled lay on one side, discarded at the entrance. There was no sign of the man, but footprints in the frost on the rock showed that he had got off the sled and, without pausing, headed into the cavern. I was loath to follow. I was having a tough enough time as it was keeping the fear at bay while traveling in what passed for sunlight here in the mountains, and the thought of delving in the dark held no appeal whatsoever. Carruthers was made of sterner stuff. In this situation, his lack of imagination was serving him well. Another of his strengths was forward planning. He took two head-mounted flashlights from his pack and passed one to me without a word. The batteries will last an hour if we're lucky. We go in, and if we don't find him in twenty minutes, we come out and head back. That gives us some margin for error. Agreed? I was more than willing to go along with that. I did, however, have a question, one that I had been pondering on the journey. And what do we do when we find him? Persuade him to return with us, of course. He is clearly not himself. I almost laughed aloud at that. My nerves were shot to pieces, and mania was not far from the surface. But when Carruthers headed toward the cavern mouth, I followed behind. I owed it to Greer to see this through, whatever the outcome may be. It was even darker inside than my worst fears had imagined. Colder, too. A biting cold that settled quickly into every fiber of my being. We walked quickly, our lights picking out marks on the floor of the cavern that were sometimes footprints and sometimes something else entirely. Five minutes after entering the cavern, I noticed that this place, like the ones we had seen on the cliff path, had most definitely been manufactured. The walls were too smooth, too regular, and then there was the carved relief that seemed to cover every surface. Pictorial representations of cities and war, natural disasters and calamity, millennia of history that we had to hurry past, leaving it unread, for the gait of the footprints on the floor had changed again. Whatever we followed now seemed to be going on all fours. After another five minutes, the path took a downward turn and got markedly steeper, such that we had to take great care not to go tumbling headlong into black depths. This is madness, Carruthers said after a stumble nearly sent us both flying. We should turn back. If Greer wants to kill himself this badly, I suggest we leave him to it. I was almost tempted to agree, and might even have done so. But then I felt it. A warmer breeze on my face. And accompanying it, somewhere not too far below us, the clear and unmistakable sound of feet slapping on rock. Carruthers did not wait for me. He headed off in rapid pursuit, his headlamp bobbing away from me in the darkness. I knew that if I did not follow, I would forever after feel like a coward, but it took every ounce of bravery I could muster to make the first step downward. The hot air on my face grew hotter still the further down we went, and a minute later I noticed that I did not need the headlamp. The cavern was filled with an all-too-familiar shimmering rainbow aurora that lit our passage down into ever warmer depths. And so, finally, we came to it. The passageway leveled off after a particularly steep final section, leading us out onto a vast cathedral-like space of vaulted rock, crystal stalactites, and a long, wide expanse of what I at first took to be water lying flat and black under a shimmering aura of dancing color. 
Greer was already there on the edge of the lakeshore, or at least the thing that Greer had been. It was slumped and hunched, round-shouldered and more simian than man. It turned at the sound of our approach, and I saw that the man I knew was not completely gone, for his haunted eyes stared back at me from a strangely flattened face. "'Come on back, Greer,' Carruthers said, although I noticed he had not taken any steps closer toward that black lake. "'There are doctors who can take a look at you, chaps who can find a cure.' I wasn't so sure of that myself, but held my peace. Greer looked from one to the other of us. His mouth opened as if he might speak, but all that came out was a rush of black fluid. Without another word, he turned, took two steps, and fell face first toward the lake, which rose up to meet him as he fell and swallowed him whole. It was not a lake as such. It was not water at all. The whole vastness of the floor of the cavern was little more than a seething, roiling sheet of the black. As Greer's body sank into it, a beat began, faint at first, but growing ever stronger. I felt it tug at me, calling me to the dance. I pulled Carruthers away. We need to leave, now. The rainbow colors swirled and danced in time to the rhythm. I danced with them. I can see it, even now. All I have to do is close my eyes. I can see the pattern and design. They were made as builders, you see, and they did indeed build. But they also danced, living and breathing in their own way, dancing in time to a beat only they can hear. The rhythm from which they were born also gave them purpose, a beat that defined the dance from its very beginnings in the dark caverns under the mountains, and would ultimately, inexorably, lead the dance to its end. I was lost to it, filled with it, awestruck by it. And I might be there yet, dancing in that cavern with what was left of poor Greer, had Carruthers not slapped me hard on the face. I believed it was that singular lack of imagination of his that saved me in the end. Might well have saved us both. I followed, he led, and we raced up and away out of the depths, back up into the twilight through which we sped back to the base, reaching home just as the last of our fuel gave in. The dance followed me all the way. So, there it is. My tale, for you to make of it what you will. I only ask that you consider it carefully before you go back to those mountain passes. I know Carruthers has spoken to you of the workings, of the long history and the relief work, and of the wonders that lie there waiting to be explored. But that same lack of imagination that saved us is also the thing that might doom everyone. For I still dance. It is in me, even now, all these months and miles distant. And I have seen the pattern, the inexorable result of our building, our dancing. With each passing year the black creeps further in the deep cavern, and the dance strengthens and grows. We have danced since before life walked on land, and we will dance long after there is nothing else but the black and the rock. We will dance in the black as the moon falls into our arms, and when the sun dims and goes dark, we will dance on, into the stars, black on black, until the very end, when all is black. All is the dance. We will dance. And that was Into the Black by William Michael. I hope you enjoyed this story. Uh, thank you for coming back and listening, as you always do. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for, uh, 
just all the support that you've that you've given me over the years. It's, it's really nice to know that there's people who appreciate the stuff that I do. I really, uh, I'm really very grateful to everybody who listens. Uh, thank you all for listening so much. Uh, if you have anything you would like to say, uh, please feel free to leave a a um, rating and a review on iTunes. You can email me at the Weird Tales Podcast at gmail.com. You can uh, send me an email at uh, no, I just said that. Or you can message me on Twitter at at uh, at Weird Tales Pod. Uh, I think that's about it. So thank you all for listening. Um, National Poetry Month is coming up. We've got a full slate going. Me and my wife both. We're gonna do poems. Uh, so uh, everybody who's a fan of my wife, you're welcome. Uh, and other than that, thank you all for listening. And I will see you next week. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. Where'd my books go? There they are. We've been doing recordings for uh, National Poetry Month. My wife is going to be doing some of them. You're welcome. And because she's so much shorter than me, she has to adjust the size of the microphone. And uh, because I am so weirdly proportioned, uh, I have this stack of books that holds up the microphone at my mouth level so I'm not slouched over while I'm reading and constantly gasping for breath because I'm cutting off you know, air passage to my lungs. Uh, but in order to do that, I need to have my hands at the right height, which they are not when I do that. So I have two books stacked up on either side of the stack of books that holds up the microphone because my studio is that that's how cutting edge my studio is. Uh, and uh, so I can have my arms at the right length. But that was all moved while my wife was recording. I love my wife. She's very, very short, which I love about her. I love my wife being short. All right, let's get on with the story. But I was dismayed to find, on getting them back inside to the lab, that much of it was just so much crust ice. Crust ice. That's not how that works at all. Both because of the increasing incline and accompanying frigidity. Let's try that again. Accompanying frigidity. It was harder going after that, 